Can y'all see me up here? <laughs> I, had to, I had to say that after last week because somebody amen my bad joke last week, Darlene. And, and Darlene does a great job with all the, the flowers and everything, but we were laughing about how tall it was. And I said, well, if I say something wrong this morning, I'll just kind of duck down and hide behind the flowers this morning. We're so glad that you're here this morning. And right now, we're in a series on the different parables of Jesus. If you've got your Bible, you can go ahead and turn with me to Luke chapter 15. Hey, Bill, are you up there? Can you turn on my screen back here? Thank you, sir. While you guys are looking there, I want to tell you a story. Some of you have probably heard this story before, and that's what happens when you have a minister for seven years. <laughs> you start getting some repeats on those stories. But several years ago, when I was in Alabama, I went to visit a lady who was in the hospital. And when I walked into her room, her physical therapist was there just trying to work with her. And she was so excited to see me, and she was so excited to introduce me to her physical therapist and said, you know, this is Slatemore. He's the minister at Robertsdale Church of Christ. And immediately the guy looked at me and he said, you don't look like a minister. Now, I'd heard that several times throughout my ministry. You guys have to understand that I began preaching full-time when I was 23 years old. I was, a, I was a young man. And so it was not uncommon for people to say, you don't look like a minister because you look too young. And so I was just going to kind of play along. I thought I already knew what he was thinking. But I looked at him and I said, well, what exactly does a minister look like? And I'll never forget what he said. He looked at me and he said, well, he said, the ones I see coming in here are never smiling. I told you that story to make this point. Oftentimes, the world's perception of Christians is that Christians aren't very happy people. In fact, I guarantee you, if you were to go downtown Winter Haven this afternoon after services, and you were just to grab someone, anyone, and you were to use the phrase happy hour, I guarantee you they would not be thinking about you just coming from worship. And the question is, why is that? Write this down if you're taking notes with me this morning. The way we portray our faith reflects the portrait we have of God. And I think this is the point that Jesus tries to make in the parables that we're going to be looking at today. Now, to really appreciate the parables that we're going to be looking at, we kind of have to know the backstory. There is a reason that Jesus tells these stories at this particular time to these particular people. And so, if you will, look at verses 1 and 2 of our text. Notice what Jesus says. Now, the who church? The tax collectors. And for those of you who don't know anything about tax collectors during that day and time, they actually bought their right to take up taxes from their own people. And they would use those taxes to help support 
the Roman army that was actually oppressing their own people. Are you with me? In, in other words, tax collectors during that day and time were the lowest of low. They were traitors. And so notice Jesus says, now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law uttered, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. Now understand that there were several accusations that were made about Jesus throughout his ministry. And most of them were not true, but there was one accusation that was true, and that was the fact that Jesus kept company with sinners. He associated with sinners. He would spend time with sinners, and, and He would eat with them, and party with them, and celebrate with them. In fact, if you back up to Luke chapter 5, Jesus calls a tax collector by the name of Matthew to be one of his disciples. And after he calls him to be one of his disciples, Matthew throws a party. He throws a celebration where he invites all his sinful friends and Jesus, and Jesus accepts the invitation. And when Jesus' critics see this, this is what they want to know. Why do you eat and drink with such scum? You go over just two chapters. To Luke chapter 7, Jesus is invited to another party. This time He's invited to the party, invited to a party at the home of a man by the name of Simon. He was a Pharisee and all the right people were invited to this party. And right in the middle of the party, right in the middle of this celebration, a sinful woman, the Bible says, comes in off of the street. And guess what Jesus does? He did what He always did. He welcomes her to the party. And so Jesus never denied that accusation. And to the Pharisees, it was a credibility-destroying accusation. You see, they wanted to know, why does Jesus party? Why does Jesus celebrate with the wrong people? Let me ask you a question this morning. Have you ever been offended at a celebration before? Back in 2019, the Dallas Cowboys had a linebacker by the name of Jalen Smith. And while breaking up a pass, he landed on the leg of Bears receiver Javon Wims. And that injury took Wims out of the game. But this is him. He's on the ground and he's just walling in pain. And Smith comes over and he celebrates. And he even does what they call the, the throat slash. And after, after the game is over, man, I'm telling you, social media blew up about Jalen Smith celebrating over an injured player. People were actually, I mean, they were absolutely upset about this celebration. Well, this is kind of how the Pharisees felt. In their mind, some celebrations just should not happen. 
And they're just being consistent with their portrait of God because the way they understood God, the invitation list to a party, to a celebration, should be very, very small. But Jesus paints a different portrait. He tells three parables. The first one was to the men. Verses 3 through 7, then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he what? Say it out loud, church. He joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and his neighbors together and he says, Why, church? Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more, what church? Rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Now it's hard for us to really appreciate this parable because we don't really understand at times the culture of that day. During that day and time, you didn't really keep sheep for meat. You kept sheep for wool. And so you would keep sheep for years and you kept them in a common village herd or flock. In other words, the shepherd that's out there in the field, he is also watching the sheep of the whole village. And so when one of those sheep comes up missing, it's a really big deal. And so he leaves the 99, and he goes looking for that one sheep that lost. And as Jesus is telling this story, there were probably there those who were there in the crowd, and they're shaking their head, saying, Man, yeah, I, I know what that's like. I've been there. I've, I've lost a sheep before. And, and I just remember going out all night long looking till I found that sheep. And then when I brought it back to the village, man, everyone started celebrating. Then Jesus told another story, another parable, this time to the ladies. Starting in verse 8. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? When she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, White church, said out loud, Rejoice with me! I have found my lost coin in the same way I tell you there is white church rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, here's what you have to understand. This story is not about a woman who had a quarter fall out of her change purse. Okay? During, this day in or during that day and time, ten silver coins were bound together as a dowry in a headdress for a woman to wear on her forehead at her wedding day and thereafter. She would wear this as a piece of jewelry daily. It was a symbol that she had a family. It was her identity. And so for her to lose this headdress or one of those coins, ladies, would have been like her losing her wedding ring. This was a really big deal. 
And so, man, she turns on the light. She's, she's sweeping the floor. She's absolutely turning this house upside down, trying to find this one coin. And don't you know, as Jesus is telling this story, there were several ladies who were sitting there going, mm, I've been there. I remember when I lost a coin off my headdress before, and, and man, I searched all day long, turned the house upside down, and when I finally found it, we had our closest friends over, and we had a celebration. Now, our problem is oftentimes we read these stories with our head, and they really don't make sense. I mean, if you're an accountant, it doesn't make sense for you to leave 99 sheep out in the open, right? To go find one. That's only, that's only 1%. I mean, next spring when the sheep start having babies, you will more than make that up. Why take the risk? If you're an accountant, you may be thinking... Why are you so worried about one lost coin? I mean, you've got nine other coins to invest, and so you should be able to make up that coin very quickly. But you don't read these stories with the head. You read them with the heart. How many of you have lost something that had a value to you, to you, that far exceeded what it actually cost? Maybe it was something that was passed down to you from your grandmother. Maybe it was like a cake plate or something. But it was so special and, and maybe you, you baked a pie in it and you took it to someone's house and then you forgot who you took that cake plate to. And it's like, oh no, that was my grandmother's. I mean, it was just, it was terrible. It, it probably wasn't worth all that much, but to you it was priceless because of who it belonged to. Or maybe your kids made you something in kindergarten or first grade and somehow you misplaced it. You lost it. <laughs> this past week I was reading about a woman in Israel and she didn't really trust the banks and so she decided she was going to take her life savings, $1 million, <laughs> and she was going to keep it in her old mattress. Well, her daughter didn't know anything about this, and one day she had a great idea. She's like, man, mom needs a new mattress, and wouldn't this be the perfect gift? And so she goes out, buys a new mattress for her mom. Her mom comes in unknowing, and she sleeps on the mattress all night, and she knows this doesn't feel my, like my lumpy old mattress, so she checks it the next morning, and it's like, this isn't my lumpy old mattress. And she goes running downstairs, and she asks her children, where is the mattress? And they're like, well, we put that out by the road yesterday. It was too late. It was gone. And so what do you think they did the rest of that day? They were looking for that old mattress. Jesus here is saying, because you have the picture of God that you have, you look at certain people and you think they're no good and they need to be thrown out, but Jesus says you're wrong. They have incredible value. 
And someone needs to go and, and someone needs to find them. And, and then the last story Jesus told, he adds really the final strokes of, of this picture. Jesus says there was a Jewish man and he had two sons. And here's the deal. This is, this is oftentimes what we really don't understand. The most valuable thing in that culture to a Jewish family was their land. Okay, so, I mean, I can't explain to you this morning how, how important land is to a Jewish family. And, and when this father dies, everyone understands and everyone knows that that land will be given to his two sons who will manage that land. But as you continue reading the story, Jesus says something that would have absolutely blown his crowd away, absolutely shocked his crowd. He says, one of those boys, the youngest, goes up to his father. And he says, Dad, he says, I can't wait for you to die. He says, I want my inheritance now. And Jesus says something next that's just as shocking as what that younger son said, and that was this. The father looks at his son and says, okay. And he deeds a portion of his inheritance to his younger son. And if that's not shocking enough, what happens next is even worse. That younger son goes out, he takes this inheritance, this piece of property that his father's given him, and he sells it for cash. Because here's the thing, you can't buy alcohol and you can't buy women with a deed. And so he cashes in the family land. And then he goes off to this far country... And he spends it on wild living. And the people during that day and time would have been like, that's terrible. That younger son is worthless. They would have thought to that father, good riddance, you don't need a boy like that. But the father that could not make his son stay could not let his son go. And so every day he would go out to that road and he would look down the road watching for his son to come home. And one day it happens. His son comes walking down that road and, well, he's dirty and he smells like pigs and he's broke. He's spent all of his inheritance, but he's coming home. And the people in the crowd listening to this story would have probably been thinking, okay, so what's, what's going to happen next? What's the Father going to do? And well, let's let Jesus tell us. Look at verse 20 now. But while he, that's the younger son, was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. 
The father said to the servant, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast. And white church said out loud, And celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was white church. He was lost and is found. And so they began, everyone say it out loud, to what? Celebrate. No one had ever painted a picture of God like that. And I would dare say that there are many of us here this morning who have read this story, who have heard this story a thousand times, but if we were honest, we probably wouldn't picture God like this either. Maybe we would picture Him as a judge in a courtroom. Maybe we would picture Him in like a boardroom where He's overlooking and organizing the universe. Maybe in our mind we can picture Him as kind of a cosmic cop just waiting for someone to make a mistake. But can we picture God celebrating? And Jesus is saying in this parable, if we can't see God right, we will never see people right. The idea of celebration is pivotal, pivotal in understanding God. And we're going to dig just a little bit deeper. I want us to go back and look at those three stories because there's two things that all three stories have in common. And here's the first. As you look at all three stories, they all start with separation, right? Every story has something of value that has become separated from whom it belongs. And Jesus describes that process with one word, and that is the word lost. And in each story, there's great agony over this lostness. And that's because, biblically speaking, it's a terrible thing to be lost. You know, if you were to go to Palestine today, there's one thing that you would not see. You would not see a flock of wild sheep. You want to know why? Because if a sheep gets lost, it is dead. And biblically speaking, lostness equals death. And so this is a strong word that Jesus uses in this story. It's, it's kind of a scary word, but Jesus used that word all the time because it framed how He saw His mission. A little later, He goes to the home of another tax collector for another party. He went to the home of a tax collector by the name of Zacchaeus. And when Jesus' critics saw him eating with Zacchaeus, they were offended. They were upset. And, and Jesus explains in verse 10, He says, For the Son of Man came to what church? To seek and to what? And to save 
the lost in every single story. Something terrible has happened. Someone or something is lost. And there's this incredible tension as the listeners wonder, is there going to be a reunion? Will it be found? Will He be found? In the first two stories, there is an all-out search. I'll leave the 99 sheep to go look for the one. Or I'll, I'll, I'll turn the house upside down so that I can find that one coin. Which makes this interesting point. People aren't seekers, God is. God is looking for His lost children. And in the third story, it's hard for us to really appreciate this shocking ending. But this is what it says. As the prodigal son is coming home, it says in verse 20, the father did what, church? He ran to his son. Now that's not a big deal for us today, but in that culture, that was a really big deal because the older men, they wore robes that, that went down to their ankles. And the only way that you could really run in a robe like that was you had to hike that robe up past your knees. Now here's the deal. In that culture, once a man reached 30, you were never to show your legs in public again. It was undignified. It was shameful. It was disgraceful. And so the only way the father could run to his son was to look as undignified as that boy did. To take the shame of the boy on himself. And I would suggest to you that this represents another story. One that has to do with another run. And this one was a run from heaven to a cross. This is the story of Jesus. Isaiah 53, verse 6. I love this text. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We've left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on Him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated hardly, harshly, yet He never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before His shears, He did not open His mouth. Unjustly condemned, He was led away. goes on to say, He was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone, but He was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. Amen. We see, most of the Pharisees could never see God like that. 
If they did, they would have joined the celebration. Which really leads us to our next commonality in all three stories, and that is at the, ever, at the end of every one of these stories, there's a celebration. Everyone's happy, except in the third story. And in the third story, there are two that aren't happy, the older brother and the fatted calf, right? And he goes to his father, and he's upset about the celebration, and the father won't have anything to do with it. In fact, he says in verses 31 through 32, this is what the father says to the older brother, my son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we, white church, had to celebrate and be what? Glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now as you get into the scripture, you don't see very many things that God has to do. But Jesus says that he must celebrate. And he must be glad. He cannot deny his character. When one of his lost kids comes home, God celebrates. And what a celebration. We love to refer to this as the prodigal son, but I believe there's another prodigal in this story. Because you know what the word prodigal means? I looked it up in the dictionary and I just copied it and, and pasted it this morning, exactly as it was. The word prodigal means spending money or resources freely and what? Recklessly. Do you know what the father did when his son came home? He said, kill the fatted calf. You don't do that. That's way too much meat to waste on one family. That was reckless. That, that was waste. That was wasteful. But he said, kill the fatted calf. You, you only do that when you're inviting the, the village and, and the whole community to celebrate. But the father says, kill the fatted calf. Have you ever noticed that the Bible depicts heaven as a great celebration? And if we know that's the way it is in heaven, why don't we bring that to earth? Because here's the deal. There are people just like that physical therapist that I mentioned just a few minutes ago in the beginning who have never connected Christianity with joy. In fact... Our world is full of churches that are full of people who honestly, they look like they've been baptized in lemon juice. It's true. And there are people who think it's supposed to be that way. And that is not true. I think oftentimes in the church, there, are way, there aren't enough younger brothers and there are way too many older brothers. I'm going to get up on my soapbox this morning. 
And I'm going to be very honest. And, you know, this is, as a minister, there are times when, when you get honest and, and, you know, you have your bags ready and, and packed, you know, because somebody may be ready for you to leave. But I'm going to be very honest this morning. Since the pandemic, I can't tell you how many people I've had complain and gripe about the way things are. I don't like the songs that are picked out for worship, and I'll be the first to tell you I pick out those songs. So if you want to complain to somebody, I mean, have at it. I don't like the praise and harmony. I don't like the Bible class situation. I don't like the way we do the Lord's Supper. Those crackers taste terrible and the juice tastes fermented. And I'm telling you, the list goes on and on. But very few people have said to me, Man, Slate, I am so glad to be at worship today. We need to celebrate. Have you seen all the new faces here at Central? Have you seen out in the board all the people who have given their lives to Jesus? And, and everything that's been... Yeah, somebody celebrate. And, and have you... I mean, it, it's unreal what God is doing online through all of this, and, and the people who are being reached, not only within this country, but even all over the world. We have people who are watching our services. God is seeking the lost. And I think so oftentimes we're tempted to forget to celebrate. Listen to me this morning. We can be lost in a pig pen or we can be lost in a pew. But here's what I want us all to remember. Every one of us at one point in time was lost. But God sought us out. And He saved us. And I'm telling you, when we come together, we need to celebrate. As we think about God's goodness and what He's done for us as we gather around this table and as we partake of the Lord's Supper, which represents the death of our Lord, the sacrifice that He made on our behalf. I'm off my soapbox now. And I will tell you this morning, if there is anyone who needs prayers, listen, you can email me, you can email the elders, you can come up to us, talk to us. We would love to pray with you, minister in whatever way we can. We love you and we want to encourage you in the Lord. This morning, we're going to go ahead and we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper and I'm going to ask everyone to stand. And what I hope we will all do before we take the Lord's Supper as we sing this song, I hope that we will sing out and I hope that we will celebrate the goodness of God.